Trevor Alpert and Tuna Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows? As he, every, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, an experiment. An experiment in podcasting. Um, <clears throat> it is probably more true than false to say that sabermetrics, the, uh, the analytic, baseball analytics, is an interdisciplinary pursuit, uh, combining, for example, uh, economics, statistics, other sorts of uh, behavioral sciences, uh, and a number of other fields, perhaps, right? Um, engaging in that same spirit, what happens in the following is I present to Cameron an anecdote from this past Sunday. My wife and I were, for one day, we were in Brooklyn, uh, and we, and then when we were leaving Brooklyn, we needed to take an Uber car from uh, Brooklyn's Carroll Gardens neighborhood to JFK Airport. The ride, that ride was largely disastrous. It was largely disastrous. Disaster is a result of multiple poor decisions, certainly not just by the by the driver, but my myself as well. The benefit, the one upshot from this miserable ride is that it provides a fertile, fertile raw material for an analogy, for multiple analogies, perhaps, to uh, to the analytics of baseball, to baseball analytics, to sabermetrics, however would you like to characterize it. In short, what we find here is an extended metaphor, extended too far, perhaps, almost certainly, but an experiment, an experiment nonetheless, uh, one designed to please and, and one which perhaps uh, fails in that regard, <laughs> too. Uh, so that's, that's the thing that follows. And, of course, it does not lack uh, insults or invective. In fact, uh, Dave Cameron unleashes his barbed wit on at least one occasion in this edition of the podcast. To be fair, if I saw you going to the airport, I would not assume that you were healthy. That and other sorts of merriment to follow. To follow, what's happening right now, however, is an advertisement. It's an advertisement for draft and the draft that are you familiar you, right there, listening right now, are you familiar with FanDuel and or DraftKings? These are well-known daily fantasy games. What I would like to tell you about is, is a daily fantasy game not unlike those, except designed exclusively for mobile devices. It is called Draft. It's a draft app. You can get it for iOS at the App Store. You can get it for Android at Google Play or perhaps other services like Google Play. What you do is you and an Internet stranger and or a friend who's also subscribed also subscribed, also subscribe to draft. You engage in a snake draft. You each select five players, whether it be in baseball, if you care for baseball, perhaps NFL football, perhaps college football, NBA basketball when that season begins. You, uh, you conduct a, a snake draft. You each select five players. They accrue fantasy points. And then you find out that one of you wins. Are you very confident in yourself? Why are you listening to this podcast? But if you happen to be confident in yourself, you can. Uh, what you can do is wager American dollars. And uh, if that's the sort of thing you want, perhaps you think you will profit. I hope you do. I really do hope you do. Uh, if you'd like to play against me, you can also do that. Just go to the post at which this edition of the podcast is located. And fangraphs.com. That's all you need. That's a that's a sponsor. That's great for us. That's great to have a sponsor. And um, it's great to move on from the sponsor's message to the conversation. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now.
um, Skype became available again yesterday? No. Hmm. I didn't look either. It's a mystery. The answer's out there, Cameron. You could look it up. I could, but I won't. Yeah, and I won't either. You know, the thing is, here's the thing. This is a thing. This is not the thing. A thing is, um, if you want the answer to most questions, uh, you can find them pretty quickly. That's true. The Internet is uh, kind of amazing. The problem is you might find a wrong answer. Well, you might find a wrong answer. There's also, you come to the conclusion, obviously, I think especially people of our age and older, Right, and we might represent some sort of cutoff. We uh, we lived at a time when if you had a question about something, right, um, the answer was not immediately available. Right, you would have to go ask uh, some older person and then hope that they were not an idiot. <laughs> right, or yeah. you or you'd have to call someone, or you'd have to buy a book. Maybe you had encyclopedias on hand if you wanted to know. You know, oh, what was the, what's the population of London? If you're curious about the population of London, the answer to that question is you could something you can find much more immediately now. Yeah, I actually remember my parents. I think shelled out a decent amount of money for Microsoft Encarta, which mm-hmm. was uh, like the kind of the Wikipedia before the internet, right. uh, and it wasn't you know editable by anyone. So it was basically software you bought that was like you know a big giant library on your computer, and I think it cost us a lot of money. Uh, and now Wikipedia is, you know, free and right. much more comprehensive. And also, but even in Carter, though, still kind of blew, maybe blew your mind. Yeah, right. Back then it was amazing. Right. And, and so here's the thing, though. So for people our, gener- our generation older, still having the, so just having a question about something and then being able to answer it immediately still is, it's a bit intoxicating, right? But I think one thing I've realized is that it's eventually like, okay, so, yeah, so I know that. <laughs> so now what? Yeah, yeah, right. Knowledge itself isn't all that useful without turning it into wisdom, maybe. Yeah, right. There needs to, something else happens to it. So it's like you have a question about something, then you answer it. I do find myself feeling dead inside a little bit uh, after I've looked up, uh, you know, like, oh, what's the population of London? Then I look it up, and and then my response to it is, well, I know that now. Or I do, I know it for five minutes after right. which point I forget and look, <laughs> have to look it up again if I ever wonder. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like these little factoids are not uh, permanently indelled in, in into our minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, – and, you know, I, it's good to have all the access. I think that one thing – and I'm sure every technology that uh, sort of creates this, right, is knowing how to use the technology in a way that does not crush your, your soul. Right, yeah. Crushing, soul crushing is not supposed to be a feature. That's a bug. Yeah, that's right. Stay away from it. Um, okay, uh, let's see. One thing, let's see, that did not crush your soul. Uh, um, I, I actually have a good, uh, a good I think maybe a good, um, let's see, a rich question to ask you momentarily. But this is also, this is like, also this a This question is going to cost me a lot of money? Mm, uh, compelling. Rich and compelling. Uh, okay. But you, in the meantime, let us focus on the, the human element. Dave Cameron, is you took your child to his first baseball game, is that right? I did, Saturday night. He went to the uh, Nationals-Marlins game, which is uh, going to go down in history as a game that no one else remembers. Mm-hmm. Significant to you, though, what are your observations on watching? Was it roughly an eight-month-old, is that right? Yeah, eight and a half months, or I guess coming up on nine months next week. Uh, my impressions of the game is that I didn't watch very much of it. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a good amount of time watching him and uh, keeping him from, you know, dying. Mm-hmm. Yes, smart. Yeah. Uh, good strategy. Uh, yeah. Did you succeed in that endeavor? 
I did. He's still alive. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, so eight months old, maybe not much of an interaction with the game. No, he, uh, I don't think he even perceived that there was a game going on. He, there was some interaction with the people seated directly in front of us and behind us. Yeah. And some interaction with the foods that we purchased. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, various items that he could stick in his mouth. I, I think I saw maybe an image on, uh, Instagram of, in which he had a, he had a ball. He was chewing on a ball. Yeah, uh, a friend of ours was nice enough to uh, get him a game ball from his first ever game. So now we have like a, a pretty cool memento that we can keep for the rest of his life saying like this is a, a ball from the first major league game you ever attended. And upon being presented with it, he immediately tried to eat it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's one of the big ways in which infants interact with the world, isn't it? Uh, I think it's the only way at yeah. this point. Like if they see something, they must find out what it tastes like. Right. Um, <clears throat> I have a friend who just took a four-year-old to um, his first game, uh, and I, his his main two reactions were well, no, here was it. Uh, it was it was an Astros Yankees game. The teams were the orange team and the white team, so that was one reflection he had. Another one was uh, he was really excited about eating ice cream out of a helmet. Yeah. And the third one was, it was funny when the ball went into the restaurant. <laughs> There's a foul ball went into some sort of restaurant. And that is just funny. Yeah. I, I also enjoy eating ice cream out of a helmet. I will say that Drew got his first, uh, well, it wasn't his first, his second taste of ice cream on Saturday. His first taste came on, I think, on Friday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he had a, he had an ice cream trip. Uh, but it, it came in the form of a Shake Shack instead of a, a, a helmet. Okay. Maybe Shake Shack should start selling their shakes in a helmet. Helmets, yeah, that's a big, that's a big helmet thing. shack. This okay, all right, well thing. that's good. So I guess you're doing research. You, I mean, you have it's only a it's a sample of one, but it's probably a pretty representative sample. I would think that when do you think a child? In, uh, I would I would be interested to hear any listeners' opinions. When a child really begins to interact with the game. That's a good question. I think my first memories of like actually interacting with what was going on on the field was like four or five. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to the Kingdom and watching like Alvin Davis play, and I knew who Alvin Davis was, and I knew what his number was, and I like cheered really loudly for him when he came up to the plate. Um, and so I think I was actually engaged in what was going on in the field. I'm pretty sure my parents took me to games before that, but I, I can't say I I was. Uh, engaging or remember what was going on in the field. I probably just, you know, liked the big shiny lights and the sounds and the smells. And right, and you haven't lost that childlike sense of wonder either, Dave Cameron. I, think, I assume that's why you never blink, so you can take it all in. Yeah, I think uh, one of the nice things with having a child is it does help people realize I'm not entirely a robot. <laughs> Although at one point, uh, Drew went a very long time without blinking this weekend and someone commented on it and I was like, that's my boy. <laughs> All right. Let me ask you a question. I think, listen, I, I think you, you, I think you're forced to agree with this statement is that sabermetrics, uh, and, 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 and the site for which we are at Fangrass, which is, which is somewhat of an expression of Fangrass, is an interdisciplinary pursuit. Is that true? It, it, it concerns baseball, but we, Take we borrow from a number of different disciplines uh, ways of of understanding uh, the game of baseball. Sure, I can agree with that. You can yeah, economics. We yeah. use, use economics, statistics, right. yeah. uh, and behavioral sciences in general. Uh, creative writing occasionally. You have to. You have right. to use logic and rhetoric uh, yeah. if you want to explore. Uh, yeah. Right. So the, so you're borrowing another one. Um, so what I want to do is to is to explore briefly a um, a, a, a 
an episode in uh, my life from this past Sunday, and I'm interested into what what I've learned from it, what it might reveal about the game of baseball, right? Or how we might use it to interact with the game. Here's what's okay. happened. Uh, my wife and I were in Brooklyn, New York. We became godparents. We renounced evil on behalf of our goddaughter. <laughs> okay. We renounced Satan. So I have to constantly monitor it, I guess. But yeah, for the right. moment, now you're free, responsible. She's free of. Uh, she's free of it. Um, and we had to go to the airport to JFK. Okay. So we called a we called an Uber driver, which is an Uber car, just something you do. And we started driving away, and my wife immediately became. She was a little bit suspicious of the path we were taking because we drove like five blocks and then turned exactly around and we started going the opposite direction. Yeah. And that's always – it's a red flag, right? Yeah. When you still go the opposite direction. So the guy is driving and then my wife uh, has also a Google Maps on her thing, which I think is a little bit annoying because this – the person who's driving you, right? The person who's driving you, he lives there. It is his profession, and so, you know, he does this all the time. I'm sure he drives people to JFK all the time, right? And so I said, well, that's kind of annoying what you're doing. But she was trying to illustrate to me that there was one path. If you went Atlantic Avenue, there would be only 40 minutes. And there was a second path using the Belt Parkway, which would take uh, 70 minutes, which uh, 30 minutes longer. And he appeared to be going the second path, okay? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, he might know what he's doing. First uh, hint of danger was um, when he tried to take what I believe is called the Cross Brooklyn Expressway, and it was closed. And oh, he was yeah, su- he, he was surprised. Yeah, that's and, that's a shame. And so he moved on to the Belt Parkway. Now here's the thing: we kept driving further and further away from the Atlantic Avenue route. Right. So if we had turned back, that would have been. That, you know, at first it was 40 minutes, but then it was more like 50 minutes, and the right. way we were going was more closer to 60 now. Right. And it was a break-even point. Yeah. Well, as we got on to the Bell Parkway, the estimations for that, because there was an accident up ahead, the estimations for that begin to increase and increase. Uh, the, the, long, the long story is – the short story is – Yeah, this uh, is already a long story. It's already a long story. The shorter version of it is we did get to the airport, but we had to be shuffled through by members of security, and uh, I, I got onto the airplane without my shoes on. Oh wow! Uh, because of, because I had not I would not have time to put them on, and so they closed the door right after us as we got on the airplane. We were the most annoying people. If I'd seen us going through, I would have hated us because we were being ushered through. And it's not like we had kids or we were handicapped. We were too. You were you were handicapped by a terrible Uber driver. By a terrible Uber driver, and also just lack of sense on our part. But we were just like two healthy white people <laughs> without children. Who were being ushered through any through, through this the gate? And uh, yes. To be fair, if I saw you going through the airport, I would not assume that you were healthy. Okay. <laughs> I would be like, "Why isn't that guy in a wheelchair?" Okay, well that's that's also fair. But here's the question: so a lot was happening, right? As we're driving away from what appeared to be the optimal route to a suboptimal route. Right. What is what is there a thing where you can where you can witness something? You can witness a suboptimal uh, plan being executed, and you're sort of helpless to it. Because we were also – I was helpless in it a couple of ways, right? Uh, because I, f- I assumed the driver knew what he was doing. And then also I was helpless because my wife was, like, really annoyed, but she's not the sort of person to say it out loud. The job was for me to digest it and then to report to the driver. But I guess what we essentially saw ourselves becoming victims of something, but it was unfolding in slow motion. 
Yeah, I think what you've just described is uh, being a Phillies fan for the last five years. <laughs> All right. But there is a sort of uh, a, a sense of helplessness, a lack of agency, I guess. What, what would you have done? How, well, actually, what's the I, proper way to file a complaint in that situation? So I actually had a similar experience where I took a non-Uber but an actual taxi after the Nationals game on Saturday night. The uh, wife and son left early, uh, as yeah, eight-month-olds will tend not to stay the whole game. Uh, and I had a friend I wanted to meet up with. Uh, so I took a cab back to our hotel in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, which is, you know, probably, I don't know, 10 miles from D.C. It's not that far. Uh, it took us like 15 minutes to drive there before the game. Uh, and so when I get in the cab and I tell the guy where to go, he's like, initially his initial response is, I'm not great with Virginia. And I'm like, well, you know, Alexandria is like literally just across the line. Like this is not, I didn't ask you to go to Roanoke or, you know, Richmond or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, he starts driving and I, uh, I realize he is also driving the wrong way, like uh, heading towards the the the, the uh, Capitol building, which is you know downtown D.C. Uh-huh. And uh, I spoke up in protest and was like, "Sir, you should be going the other way." And he said, uh, "I know what I'm doing," and appealed to his own authority, and then proceeded to drive us like 20 minutes out of the way. Uh, so yeah, I think maybe uh, in general. Um, there's not a lot you can do when you're in the back of a car and someone else is driving. Like, you can lodge a protest or not lodge a protest in your case, and you're just going to end up going wherever that person wants you to go. I think uh, you you just are at their uh, behest in some sense. Even if you say, like, sir, I have information that suggests you are doing something incorrect, uh, they're not required to care. Right. Well, the, so the appeal to authority is one interesting situation, right? And actually, uh, this was... Uh, uh, this was d- directly cited. I don't know if you used those exact words, but David Laurel published this uh, yesterday, actually yesterday, a very timely interview with uh, Craig Council, the the manager, a former player for, a former member of the front office for, and now current manager of the Milwaukee Brewers. And I think Council has a, a bit of a unique um, – a unique understanding of his position because he did work in the front office. And he cites that on more than one occasion of how being a player and then working in the front office and now going down to the field level again, he has a sense of perspective that maybe he lacked before, right? Um, And yet he has not totally abandoned what might be called intuition or something of these sorts. But this must be something which which, uh, managers have to navigate all the time, right, in which the people who surround the manager have to navigate – is knowing when knowing when that sense of intuition and maybe in this case intuition is just a sort of is a is a code word for uh, ex- years of you know uh, let's see wisdom developed from years of experience wisdom is not you know measurable maybe uh, when to defer to that or when to defer to you know the information that's coming from a more objective source yeah, I mean, that's, I think, uh, one of the trickiest things about baseball and especially about being a baseball manager, as Craig Council is. I think I saw some, uh, article from maybe Tony La Russa, or not, not that he wrote it, but his comments in an article where he was talking about, uh, kind of the Diamondbacks' use of analytics. And, uh, you know, they've been criticized, I think, after Dave Stewart made some comments last winter about how they were an old school organization and, um, you know, they, I think La Russa and Stewart are both, 
uh, not the most statistically savvy guys out there. Uh, and, and Larusso is essentially defending their organization saying, look, we think there's a, a time and place for this kind of information, but it's in the office, not on the field. Once you're in the dugout, you just need to go with your feel and go with your gut and watch what's happening in front of you. And that's what's actually important. And I think, uh, you know, I just disagree with him. I think like the, 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 <laughs> the most incorrect thing a manager can do or, you know, uh, an evaluator can do when watching the game is assume that the thing happening in front of them is the most important variable uh, and that all previous history should be ignored. I think the evidence shows pretty clearly uh, that over history, we're just not very good and we don't have the physical capabilities to watch a game and predict the future based on what we're seeing in front of us. I think this ties into a little bit of what I wrote about on Monday uh, with Matt Harvey and the Mets lifting him is, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, he th- allowed one hit and one walk in five innings, so therefore taking him out was stupid. Uh, but we just physically can't watch a guy pitch even that well when he's, you know, dominating for five innings and think we know what's going to happen in the future. We can, you know, there's been plenty of studies done where you find a pitcher who's fantastic for the first 15, 18 batters he faces and then he just melts down and we're just not capable of identifying in advance, uh, how well a player is going to continue to do in a game based on how he did earlier in the game. And I think, uh, you know, the generally the best managers in my perspective are the ones who understand their own limitations and don't think they have some superpower of, uh, predictive abilities based on their eyes and what they've seen, but they, uh, rely on history and rely on the data and say, you know what? Uh, I can't know what's going to happen in the future, so I'm going to make the best bet based on the probabilities. Right. Uh, the, the, a great quote from from uh, Council. He he says this. Uh, he, t- he says this to David Lorla. He says, "There's emotion in the dugout and in the clubhouse. You need to use emotion. You try to use it in a good way. But I understand why it can sometimes make decision making difficult. That's where the perspective of your front office can help you at times. Uh, that outlook is valuable as a manager you need to recognize it. That is interesting, right? I, um, the that sort of relationship between between emotion and then something a bit um, well, a bit a bit more a bit more objective uh, and a bit cooler. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, distance is a, a positive thing when it comes to evaluating baseball. There's a, uh, a friend of mine uh, told me a Theo Epstein quote that I don't know that I'd seen before, but I, it kind of jogged my memory and at least sounds like something Theo Epstein would say. Uh, of like baseball is best viewed from the front row, but best evaluated from 10,000 feet. Uh, like the further I think you get away from the field, probably the better chance you have of uh, seeing what's actually happening and not getting caught up in the kind of the story of what's happening, which can lend itself to um, some false narratives. Right. And it's interesting, too, though, because obviously a lot of managers are former players, right? Right. And when you're doing this sort of thing, especially if you are, you know, especially if you think of, of a batter, there are, there's a lot. There was, a, of course, Eno Saris has published today, you know, a great piece with Joey Votto, in which it, you know, it's revealed that Joey Votto uh, is very, has very thoughtful about his approach. But at the same time, Votto, like any player, this is true of any player, uh, you, you still need to be able to hit the baseball, which right. is a very much a, you know, it, this is something that calls on your your physical memory, and uh, you know, an arrangement of muscles and its relationship to your brain. That, that, that regardless of what you've done in terms of the background, like you cannot necessarily be thinking about all of this at, at the plate. And so I assume that if that's if your success has largely been based on your ability, for example, to make to make contact or to pitch a ball very well, uh, or you know because you're a good fielder, that to rely on something else uh, might be a little bit scary. 
Yeah, and I think this is maybe where LaRusso's perspective is coming from, is as a player, it probably is more true that you can do a lot of preparation in advance and study and come up with a strategy and a game plan. But then when you're on the field, you need to just react. And your your uh, mental side needs to become subservient to your physical side, uh, at which point you just need to be like, that's a you know a fastball I'm going to swing now. But that can't be like a sentence that you say out loud because otherwise it'll be in the glove and you'll have struck out. Uh, so you essentially can train your body in advance to respond in a more effective way, but you kind of need to leave the mental side of it at the, uh, you know, at the clubhouse steps. Uh, as a manager though, you don't really have those split second, uh, you know, I have to make a decision right now. There's certainly some that where you don't have like a long time to make a decision, but there's never a time where you just have to instantly react without you know, being able to form a sentence of thought in your mind. Uh, and so I think, you know, as a manager, it's generally better to uh, play the probabilities and, and kind of do analysis and, you know, uh, evaluate based on, you know, historical data and trends from the past. Whereas a player, uh, maybe there's something to LaRusso's comment that, you know, uh, you just need to be in the moment and uh, let your body take over. Now, with regard to the Harvey situation, which you invoked, um, and this was the replacing it with uh, Hansel Robles, who, as you mentioned in that, and anyone can see by looking at his player page of fangraphs, has actually been quite good this year. Uh, he strikes a lot of people out. Um, and, you know, in the end, really, what this is just to protect Matt Harvey, both for his own sake and also for the sake of the team as they enter the playoffs and, you know, as he's on their as he's on their team in future seasons. Um what, with regard to the times through the order thing, because this is pretty regular, the the uh, the, the decline in effectiveness through times through the lineup, right? I mean, it's a pretty regular effect across all pitchers. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. I mean, I've, some pitchers, and I think the best pitchers, one of the ways they're the best pitchers is they decline less as the game goes on, so they can you know maintain their stuff or maintain their performance later on in games. Uh, and some pitchers are, you know, dramatically worse multiple times to the order. Those guys usually end up in the bullpen. Uh, but there is a, a you know, an effect that, uh, you know, uh, all pitchers experience. The degree to which the pitchers experience isn't exactly the same, but in general, uh, a pitcher is going to be worse the third time through the order, the second time through the order, fourth time through the order than they were the first time. How, how clear is our understanding of what the variables, uh, what variables are influencing that decay in, in, in per- performance? And um, I mean, is this are these things that have been been proven objectively, or do we have only guesses about it? We don't know. I mean, I think one of the most interesting parts of the kind of the times through the order penalty is we don't actually know if it's the pitcher declining or the hitter improving. So this is uh, one of the things I think historically we've just assumed it's pitcher tiring, and it makes sense, right? Like we kind of know that you know velocity decreases over the course of the game, uh, movement uh, you know is generally not as sharp later on. Uh, you know, we, we know relievers can throw harder, uh, because they're, you know, just gearing up for 15 pitches at a time. So there seems to be, uh, some trade-off of kind of longevity for stuff, right? So like the longer you pitch, the worse your stuff probably is. Uh, you know, I think this makes sense logically, but we don't actually know this is true. Like, uh, it's actually a little bit difficult to tease out, uh, how much of the players, the hitters performing better against pitchers the second, third, fourth time through the order is them saying, okay, I saw your entire repertoire, I've, you know, I've already seen your changeup, I know what it looks like, I've trained my mind to look for certain movements or certain tells, and maybe my mind isn't capable of remembering what it looked like three months ago the last time I faced you, but since I just faced you an hour ago, it's fresh in my memory and I can, you know, pick the ball up out of your hand a little bit faster. 
you know, that's certainly probable. Uh, that, that, that's at least part of the effect is that, you know, uh, hitters improve more often they see pitchers within the same game, and we don't know how much of the effect is hitter improvement versus pitcher decline. It's almost certainly some of both, but whether it's like 70% pitcher decline and 30% hitter improvement or, you know, 70% hitter improvement and 30% pitcher decline, we, we just don't know. We, well, we know, or we, we don't know, we, we, like in terms of things that are, that are able to be measured, um, it's not uncommon for pitchers to lose a, a bit of velocity, at least over the course of a game. Right, a little bit. Not, yeah, I mean, usually if a guy loses five miles an hour, he's hurt. But yeah, right. I mean, to tick down from like maybe he starts at 94 and by the end of the game he's 91 or 92, that's, that's pretty normal. That's not uncommon. Um, um, and so that is, that seems like at least it could be one suggestion. But I think, isn't there, uh, isn't there some sort of fallacy where we're perhaps, uh, over, let's see, we are over convinced, we are convinced too thoroughly, uh, by a certain variable if, if we are able to measure it. So I would say, well, I can't measure anything else, but I can measure the velocity. I see that it decreases a little bit, and therefore I identify that as uh, as the the cause because it's the one thing I I can quantify. So so I would kind of agree with that and kind of disagree with that. Okay. I think that uh, to some extent, yes, we probably put too much stock in the known and not enough in the unknown. But at the same time, when you're trying to make decisions, you can't really make decisions based on ethereal things that can't be known at the time, right? So like. Uh, if you just say, like, you know, velocity is, say, 10% of the, the equation and we don't know the other 90%, I think all you can really do is decide on velocity and hope the other 90% works out in your favor. You could spend, you know, a lot of time trying to figure out that 90%, but you're just going to guess at the end until it's known, until those variables and the, and the impact of those variables are known. I mean, you basically are just <laughs> uh, spitting in the wind. So uh, when you have a, you know, a kind of a, a minority variable that's, you know, not going to be the sole factor of the the result, but it's the only one you know or the one you know the best. It's still the thing that you should make the most, uh, you know, kind of the the biggest variable in your decision making because it's at least the thing you know. Mm-hmm. So should I have corrected the driver who was driving in the in the direction that was least favorable? I think so, but I corrected my driver and it didn't help either. So right, <laughs> I mean, but I didn't your didn't your driver say say at the very beginning? I don't know. He said, I don't know Virginia that well, right? Yeah, but I think he at least knew the direction of Virginia. And he should have known <laughs> that he wasn't going in it. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. I mean, I'm driving right at this giant building that has a dome on it that's fairly famous. Yeah. I would think I know that that's not in Virginia. That's the Capitol building. Yeah. Yeah, the Capitol. We were literally driving up Capitol Avenue towards the Capitol. And I was like, uh, Virginia's the other way. And he just kept going. Yeah. It's just there's there because there's another thing because if you talk about authority the driver has the authority right you're he a hostage in his car I'm a hostage in his car but I also am deferring I am going to defer to his authority because I don't live in Brooklyn I live in New Hampshire why would you trust my well I mean you if your wife had a map system then your personal experience doesn't really matter you were appealing to Google Maps instead of appealing to your own personal understanding of the streets yeah she was she was annoyed. I, I would have been as well, probably, yeah. What's the th- – this happens in baseball, right, sometimes? I mean, like, you think of the national season, right? Yeah. The national season did not go particularly well. Right. Um, are they are – they, are they, they're not mathematically out. No, no, they're six and a half back with 13 to play. So, right. you know, they could come back, but it's very unlikely. It's unlikely. The thing is – the thing is, did – so something was bad. Something went wrong because they weren't – well, first of all, they appeared to have a great team to begin the season, Right. Yeah, the projections certainly suggested as much, yeah. and I think that um, even people who were just 
you know, mostly accustomed, you know, mostly uh, knowledgeable of who these players were. So this is a good team. Right. And then uh, they were in first place for a while. Yeah, they, right. They uh first half of their season went okay. Right. And then they and then they stopped winning games for <laughs> in a way that you don't like to. Yeah, everyone on their team except for Bryce Harper started playing badly and Bryce Harper only played, you know, like a normal human good person instead of the insane monster home run hitter he'd been earlier. Right. So this is this is this is the equivalent of things going poorly on the drive, right? You start to say, "Well, this is not going well now." We appear to be, we appear to be uh, not that close to JFK Airport, right? Right. Yeah. But what is the? So there's always now, there has to, there's always some explanation, right? The point is, is it an explanation upon which you can act to to affect uh, change, right? That's the turning the car around, if we, if that's what we have to do. Is there something? Is there a way? Is there something that the Nationals could have done? Do you sense, or is this just one outcome that's poor of, you know, if you look at the probabilities of them, you know, winning the division, is this one of the, the, the non-winning the division outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like asking, could you have gotten in another Uber, right? Like, uh, theoretically, there's something you could have done, uh, ahead of time to not go the wrong way to the airport. But you didn't know that your driver was going to be, you know, directionally challenged, uh, or just trying to milk you for more money, one of the two. Um, and so you made the just, you know, seemingly rational decision to get in his car and trust that he would perform as a, you know, normal Uber driver would and take you in the direction you wanted to go. Uh, I think the Nationals put together a roster that should have been rationally expected to end up in first place. Uh, but once it became clear that this team was underperforming and wasn't playing that well, there wasn't really much to do at that point. Like, you couldn't make Doug Fister be unhurt, uh, or Steven Strasburg, you know, come off the disabled list and pitch well. Uh, you couldn't make Anthony Rendon find his power. Uh, you couldn't make Jason Worth not be terrible. Uh, you know, there were just things that, like, these are, you know, I think I wrote a couple months ago, the, the Nationals had like a group of eight players who combined for 30 war last year who had been replacement level at that point in the season. They're probably a little bit ahead of that now because I think Worth has picked it up a little bit and uh, a few other guys. But, you know, like Wilson Ramos has a 265 on base percentage. What are you going to do about that? Like Wilson Ramos was a very good player last year. Uh, you know, you certainly weren't going to go replace him ahead of time. You're not going to trade for a new catcher in season. It's just one of those things that you're like, well, we, did, we couldn't have really seen this coming or we don't think we could have seen this coming. We couldn't really change course once we were down the course. We just kind of had to hope that Wilson Ramos got on base just because like, kind of like you had to hope that your Uber driver figured out which way JFK was. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, you mentioned the, the sort of change of course. My wife at one point, because uh, she was unhappy. Did I mention that? Uh, yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, she said, uh, she said, I think you called the, you called for the car too. This is why I wanted to call for the car sooner. Cause I, I, you know, I'd want to spend a little more time with our friends. And then, uh, but she brought up the point that if I had called the car later, we would have gotten a different Uber driver who, as long as it was, uh, is, if he took the more efficient route, we would have actually gotten there earlier despite having called him later. Right, that's bad process, good results, right? Like uh, being tardy with calling your cab and then getting a better cabbie is not a good plan. Uh, and, you know, I think we've talked about this a little bit with, like, teams who are overperforming their base runs. Like if you're, you know, uh, in first place with a below, like you've scored fewer runs than you've allowed, that was not something you should have been able to predict <laughs> or not something you should have expected. And it's not something you should count on continuing. And it's not a good thing to be like, yeah, what good job us. We executed our plan perfectly. You just, you know, got some fortunate results that turned out in your favor. 
Um, so this was what, what was there? What was the the Mariners team that built up its roster heading into a season uh, with the assumption that they were going to be sorry they would be building off of the success of the previous season? But there was mostly that result was a product of I think they outperformed their base runs record by like ten wins or something. So I think you're thinking of the 2010 Mariners, yeah. which was, uh, the year after, like, uh, they had a surprisingly good year in Jack Sarancic's first, uh, tenure. They won 85 wins, or 85 games. I think this is actually an incorrect narrative that you're repeating that a lot of people bought into is like the Mariners, I think, won 85 games with a negative run differential, but they underperformed their base runs, uh, ah. in, in terms of their run differential. Like their base runs said they were basically an 83 win team and they won 85 or something, but they did have a negative run differential that year, and the next year they crashed. Uh, and so I think a lot of people are like, haha, we should have seen this coming. Uh, when in reality, like their run differential was actually the, the outlier, or not their winning record or their base runs record. Okay. Um, and then, but, the, but they, all right, so, so maybe it wasn't uh, necessarily a bad idea, but the point is, uh, yes, you're right. Perhaps the incorrect, the correct slash incorrect narrative at the time was that they were looking at one piece of information right. when maybe another should have been informing their decisions. Yeah, I would, I think, you know, uh, the question is always like, what are you trying to do, right? If you're trying to forecast future performance, we know that you probably don't want to take sequencing into account. If you're, uh, trying to analyze what has happened in the past, you know, maybe you do. And so, um, it, I think the, the tool that you use is always dependent on the question you're asking. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, one final thing. This is what we're looking at here. This is an extended metaphor. Are you familiar? Are you familiar with that? Uh, I've become uh, familiar with it on this podcast. We've extended yeah. this metaphor. It's, yeah. um, we've belabored is another word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've forced you. I've forced you to belabor this metaphor. I think go- we we actually uh, killed a horse, and then uh, <laughs> uh, for so long it's taken that we've been beating it. it that dead horse has actually like birthed the child. We killed that, and now we're, <laughs> we're killing the dead horse's children. Right. <laughs> and the worst thing is. It's a gift horse, and not yeah. only have we looked at it in the mouth, but we've also we've also beaten it. That's right. So now we're belaboring more metaphor. The 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 relationship. So at one point, my wife suggested that um, uh, because of this poor decision I'd made, which was not unlike some other poor decisions I've made in the uh, before it, that she suggested that she might be looking for a divorce over over your Uber selection. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that feels like maybe the straw that's breaking the camel's back, and not and not actually the real problem. Yeah, that's what I actually said. I said, "Is it a straw breaking the camel's back?" So I guess well, in this particular case, is am I the manager and she is the general manager, or am I the general manager and she's the owner, or is it some other sort of arrangement? Do you suppose? I think you're definitely subservient. Uh, yes. I don't know. Maybe you're like the general manager and she's like the president of Sustuli operations mm-hmm. because you have a, you know, like as the man, like, uh, traditionally you've had, uh, you've been seen to have more power, but in reality, like, she's the one pulling the strings, even though you might have a title that has historically, uh, been the decision maker. I see, right, right, okay, right. Because typically the, the husband, it is not, it's not telling tales us, typically the husband's been the decider, but she's really, she's actually in charge in this particular case. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we didn't. We have not. She has not filed for divorce, but it's also perhaps just because she's really busy. Yeah, that, that that is a good reason to stay married. Yeah. I just don't have time to call a lawyer. That would be a different. We have not come across that euphemism yet in terms of uh, GMs who've been released. 
Uh, we have to, we have he was to too lazy. <laughs> we, uh, we we didn't replace him because we just didn't want to conduct the interviews. I mean, right, or also divorce. We were we were right. looking for a uh, divorce. Yeah, we've we've divorced ourselves. I don't think anyone's going to get divorced from their organization. That's not usually uh, PR terminology. No, it's not. All right. Okay, I feel like uh, feel like uh, you really actually have fulfilled your obligations at this point, and have I have, belabored them? We have succeeded, yes, in really destroying. But I was I was wondering because there were so many. There were so many moments when it seems like a better outcome would have been possible, and yet in no case was it ever happening. On this podcast? Well, definitely that, but also in, yeah. the, in the drive I, to the airport. Okay. Well, I was going to suggest that if you wanted to have a better podcast, you just needed to have better guests. Yeah, or better host, perhaps. You're right. Either. Maybe next week we can have a better <laughs> guest with a new host. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Oh, man. How does it feel? To not be a good guest on a podcast? No, to be done with this now. Oh, better. Yeah. It was an experiment, Dave. Okay. Well, let's not do this again. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> experiments have to fail. That's true. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you have anything to add? You wrote a, you wrote a post that you, that you published shortly before we got here. Yeah, it's fine. People can read it. It was about MVPs and value and best, and you've had this argument before. You're probably tired of listening to it. What do you, what do you, wait, do you have, you got a vote this year, right? What's your vote on? Cy Young. NL Cy Young. And I'll say young. Yeah. There's a, I think of like one pretty good argument. There's a, a candidate that I think, uh, at most people probably are leaning towards. Yeah. Uh, I am not decided, mm-hmm. decided. I wouldn't be allowed to say even if I was. Right. Uh, but I am conflicted and, uh, I think it's actually going to be a hard decision for me. Do, wait, can you at least can you at least summarize who the front runners are? Is that, are you able to do that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so like Zach Greinke is obviously having a very good year. Yeah. Clayton Kershaw is uh, still the best pitcher in the world. Yeah. Uh, Jake Arrieta has been amazing. Yeah. Uh, Madison Bumgarner has had a very good season, especially if you count uh, pitcher hitting in the in the award for the best overall pitcher, which I think I'm going to. Ah, right. Uh, yes, so you I'm asked that question. Should hitting right. be should hitting be allowed? Right. I, and I think it should. I think the award is for the best pitcher, not the best person pitching on the mound. Uh, mm-hmm. So I look at it as like a position award and not a skill award. Um, so right, I think there, you know, there's probably, uh, I would imagine Granky, Kershaw, Arietta are going to receive the most support. Uh, but I think it's uh, maybe a closer race than just looking at ERA would suggest. What you're saying is, yes, is it a skill? I mean, that, that's something that creeps up with the MVP too, isn't it, right? Because you're looking at who had the best year in 2015 versus who's actually, if you were going to name the best pitcher in terms of skill, that would probably be Clayton Kershaw, right? Yeah, but I think that with the, the in regards to pitcher hitting, that's not necessarily the argument I'm making. I'm saying pitchers have, as part of their job function, hitting is mm-hmm. it's part of what they do. It's like 95% pitching and 5% hitting, but it's not 100-0. Uh, and so in this aspect of his job as a pitcher, Madison Bumgarner has to go hit two or three times a game, and he's been really good at it when he's done it. And I, I think he's helped his team win uh, games that he's pitched by also hitting. And I think you know, like just like we shouldn't ignore pitcher fielding. Like I don't, I don't think that anyone would be in favor of saying, okay, well that's not pitching once you're off the mound and fielding the ball and throwing it to the base. Uh, I think we'd all agree that's you know part of a pitcher's job. I think pitcher hitting is also part of their job. So I think I'm going to include. Credit for how well they did at the plate in determining Cy Young uh, voting. You know, it's interesting you bring up uh, you bring up pitcher fielding because uh, let's see, Craig uh, Craig Edwards wrote about this I think towards the end of last week. Uh, you know, just uh, attempting to examine Dallas Keuchel's claim to to, to the Cy Young 
you know. And uh, I think his defensive run saved is something like 12 or 13 right now. Right, he's very good defensively. He's very good defensively. And this is something he maybe did last year too, not to the same extent maybe, but also strong last year. So maybe we think it's not a entirely flukish. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so yes, but that's a way to save runs. He say, I mean, if you if you believe that the numbers, he say he's he's produced over a win just by fielding well. Right. And I think the same goes for like uh, guys who hold base runners really well. Like this has historically been something Johnny Cueto is very good at. He's very hard to steal bases on. That's not pitching necessarily, but it's run prevention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's part of the whole package. So when I look at, you know, when I determine who I'm going to vote for in the Cy Young, I'm going to try and look at every part of value that a, a player adds uh, on days when he's on the mound. I probably wouldn't consider like, uh, you know, fielding value on days he was inserted as like an outfielder on, uh, as a, you know, a 16 inning game and they ran out of players. Like mm-hmm. at that point now he's just doing another job. Uh, but I think, you know, on days when he says, okay, you're going to take the mound, your responsibilities today are to throw the ball 110 times and also field balls hit in your general direction and then you have to hit twice and run the bases. Like, to me, I should judge all of those things. You know, it's interesting, uh, a couple of the other pitchers you mentioned, uh, Zach Greinke appears to be second um, by defensive run saved, and Jake Arrieta is tied uh, with a bunch of people for fifth overall with five runs. Yeah. Uh, so uh, something to that. I don't know or if that's just uh, coincidence or not, but there, they, there it is. Right. Hmm. Very interesting. All right. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You have fulfilled your obligation. Hooray. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Zestule. This is Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>